Hi, everyone. Today, we're going to talk about historic corruption indictments filed against Trafigura, one of the world's most powerful commodity trading houses, and its former chief operating officer, Mike Wainwright. I'm your host, Bill Coffin, and this is The Ethicast. On December 5th, the Office of the Attorney General of Switzerland filed federal corruption charges against Trafigura and its former chief operating officer, Mike Wainwright. The charges allege that between 2009 and 2011, millions of dollars worth of bribes were paid by Trafigura to Angolan officials to develop ship chartering and bunkering activities between Trafigura and the Sonangol Group, Angola's state oil company. Allegedly, this deal secured some $144 million of additional profits for Trafigura. Wainwright is being indicted for personally helping to funnel the payments. Trafigura is being indicted for allowing it to happen. It is the first time that Switzerland has filed such charges against a company and against such a senior commodities trading executive. Both Trafigura and Wainwright deny the charges. If found guilty, Wainwright will face up to five years in prison. Wainwright, who had announced his intent to retire, is still technically an employee of the company, but is currently on leave. The news comes at a difficult time for Trafigura, which has a history of appearing in criminal investigations, including Brazil's historic Operation Car Wash anti-corruption probe, which ran from 2014 to 2021. Earlier this year, the company made the bruising revelation that it was the victim itself of a massive fraud in which it paid more than $500 million for a shipment of nickel that turned out to be nothing more than rubble. To discuss this story in further detail is Ethisphere's Chief Strategy Officer and Executive Chair, Erica Salmon-Byrne. Erica, as always, thanks so much for joining us. Bill, it is absolutely my pleasure, although every time you and I do one of these Reacts uh, situations, I always wonder why we keep having to record these Reacts videos. <laughs> so, Well, you know, Erica, I have to say, one of the biggest dopamine hits I get working at Ethisphere is periodically when my, I get a Slack notification from you with a news link, and usually it's, it's with the... Uh, the comment, have you seen this? And yeah. it's it's always something quite, really amazing and interesting and, and eye-watering. And yes, it's uh, further proof points for why we're in the work that, we, that we're in. For me, the most eye-opening aspect of the story is the accusation against Mark Wainwright, who is so much more senior than other officials that are traditionally held to account in cases like this. So what does this signal to you from an enforcement perspective? And what should the Mark Wainwrights of the world be thinking right now? Yeah. Yeah, it's it's a, it's a it's a good way to open uh, Bill because you're right. You know, it is it is unusual unfortunately when we look at these cases of um, alleged corruption or misconduct uh in recent the recent uh, past to see very senior executives being held to account, right? We had that um, pretty regularly in the early 2000s with some of the the corporate scandals of of that era. And then you know, we have definitely had situations over the course of the last decade and a half or so where the people who were involved in the misconduct at the senior most levels were not part of the people that were brought to account for their behavior. And Wainwright was not only one of the early uh, employees at Trafurga, um, but also a very, very senior person uh, holding the role of chief operating officer and being one of the three people who stepped up to lead the company after the CEO um, was killed. So yeah, it is, it is interesting in that regard. Now, that said, I, I do think one of the takeaways from it is it's a reminder to all of us that the seniority of your position does not insulate you from consequence, right? Um, it is is easy to think that that is the case because, as I said, 
you know, we've, we have not seen as much senior prosecution lately, but I think if you look at the SBF situation, right, Bankman Freed, um, we have seen, you know, somebody very senior held to account there. Um, we saw somebody very senior held to account at finance. finance. Um, you know, so, so I do think there is a definite, it's a reflection of the fact that there is a definite interest uh, amongst the prosecutorial side of things, at least to hold senior people to account when they can. The misconduct that Swiss prosecutors are alleging stems from 2009 to 2011. Now, mm -hmm. Trafagura notes that the charges also stem from a plea deal made by former senior executive Mariano Marcondes Faraz. I believe I'm getting that name right, Faraz, perhaps. Mm -hmm. uh, but he was charged in 2018 for funneling bribes to Petrobras as part of Operation Car Wash. So it's easy to imagine how these things might all be kind of connected by various spider webs of misconduct. But it's a little less easy to understand the timing of it all. Um, so do cases like this really take so long to untangle? Or is this more a sign of shifting prosecutorial expectations and intent in the US, Switzerland, Brazil, and elsewhere? I think it's a little bit of both, Bill, um, based on the reading that I've done. Now, I should, of course, caveat this statement with the fact that neither you nor I have any special insight into the uh, intent or uh, inner workings of the prosecutorial function in Switzerland. Um, but purely from the fact that you and I are both voracious absorbers of this kind of news uh, and have read everything we can get our hands on about this case, um, it seems to be a little bit of both. I think some of it is definitely the complication uh, of, the, uh, of the situation. Uh, it took a while to work its way through. It took a while for the, the case to be built. Because the other thing I will say about senior executives who have the resources to hire very, very good defense counsel uh, is prosecutors are reluctant to bring these cases if they don't think they can win. So, um, you know, I, I think the what I would say from the outside looking in here is the Swiss prosecutorial team took the time it needed to build the case it wanted to make before they brought any charges forward. Lately, I've been doing a lot of ethicasts with folks who are just moving the needle in their organizations in very meaningful ways when it comes to building and advancing their ethics and compliance programs. And in every case, when I'm doing my research for these interviews, before we ever get on camera, I take a look at their website and I try to find mm -hmm. where the ethics compliance department sits on the public facing you know, uh, aspect of the company. And it's always right there. It's like a link away from the main page. It's really obvious to find. And that struck me today as I was researching this particular topic because in its official statement around these corruption charges, Trafagor notes that they have committed to building a robust compliance and governance program since the time alleged in the charges, since 2009 to, th to 2011. But when you go to their website, the <laughs> details of their governance and compliance program are kind of hard to find. They're buried in their sustainability section. And even then, it's not exactly an intuitive or super detailed accounting of the program. So I guess my question to you is, when a company wants to share with the public how, it, how its program works, um, when it wants to build that confidence that it's it's being forthright about its efforts here, what are some of the best practices you have seen with regards to website information, publicly available documents, et cetera? I mean, look, Bill, we live in the information age, right? Um, finding information, if you want it to be found, is not hard. If the information is challenging to be found, it is because it's not a priority for the company to make sure that it can be found, right? They've, you know, th there's, this is not, challenging. There's lots of great examples out there of companies that have made a deliberate decision to make it very clear how they have structured their program and what their priorities are. You can, you know, as you said, you look on websites, it's one or maybe two clicks away from the main page. You read the ESG report, it's in the report. 
Some companies are even uh, creating specific standalone ethics-related reports that talk about the program and the structure of the program. So uh, a company that's truly committed to building a culture of transparency and accountability uh, will be transparent and accountable with the way that they talk about that program in the public. And when that does not happen, uh, it means one of two things. Either the company doesn't think the outside public has any reason to know. Trafigura is a private company. So they may you know, have made a decision that nobody on the outside needs to know. Now, given the position they're in, the ongoing investigations into their behavior, right? Because they're not done. Uh, all no. of the news stories note that there are, you know, there's additional uh, in investigations out there. Yeah. Given the fact that, that they are under the scrutiny that they are under, and given the fact that they have uh, the amount of activity, prosecutorial activity uh, swirling around them, were I in their shoes and I had actually built a program that was worth bragging about, you would see it everywhere, right? It would be on the website. It would be on the main page. It would be something that I would talk about. My compliance chief would be out discussing what the company had built. We haven't seen any of that, right? We haven't seen any of that. And so my suspicion is that the words are being said because the lawyers have told him, told the CEO that the words need to be said and that there really is not very much underpinning those words. Ethics doesn't just happen. You need to put in the time. So make sure to register for the 15th Annual Global Ethics Summit, a live and virtual event in Atlanta, Georgia, from April 22nd through the 24th. Save $200 by using the code ETHICAST at registration. To learn more, visit attendges.com. Now, I have never worked in the commodities industry. Um, so Nor have I, yeah. To an outsider such as myself, though. But I, I, let me back up. I have been quite extensively in the risk management industry and in the and in the compliance and ethics industry. And to a outsider such as myself, this all looks like the behavior of a culture where corruption was perhaps more permissible once upon a time than it is now. Um, the sands have shifted. And now for certain people, there's a really dire reality check underway. Mm -hmm. um, but this also brings to mind the existence of just corruption within the commodities trading world itself. Um, and an industry that's kind of notorious for discrete envelopes passing back and forth. There is somebody right now in a trading house or a brokerage or some other similar organization who is seeing this story and they're seeing similar behavior. They want to raise their hand, but they're terrified to do so. What do you say to that potential upstander? Yeah. So, Bill, I, I think you're right to call out the cultural transition that we have seen um, in a lot of industries, and the commodity sector is is certainly not immune from that. One of the details that I found particularly interesting in, I think it was the journals reporting on this particular situation, was that the Swiss government has also charged an Angolan official, right? So they're not only charging the company and Wainwright um, for the, the bribery, but also uh, charging the person who received the, the envelopes of cash um, and the, you know, the, the transfers into the Swiss accounts. Um, and that is, I think, a reflection of the growing understanding that, that this is a problem you have to solve from both sides, right? There is, um, anytime you have a bribery situation, there's the person who is handing over the money and there's the person who is receiving or requesting the money. And you really need to tackle the problem from both sides um, in order to, to be able to effectively address the, the root causes of corruption. In terms of what I would say to that potential upstander, you know, it is a, um, it is, it is a, it's always a challenge um, to figure out whether or not you can comfortably and um, appropriately raise your hand and how to do it. But I will say, 
the sheer increase in volume that we saw in the SEC's whistleblower report to Congress this fall. Um, you and I, Bill, haven't had a chance to talk about that on an Ethicast. But for anybody who hasn't had a chance to take a look at it, um, you know, the, the number of inbound inquiries into the whistleblower office at the SEC um, eclipsed the number that was uh, received last year, which was also a record-breaking year. So we had a record-breaking year last year. This year broke that record by a fairly substantial percentage. And so there are channels that are available to you if the company that you're in is not a place where you are comfortable raising your hand. Um, and sometimes raising your hand isn't comfortable, right? And so it is about having the courage to do that. Um, and one of the other things I will say is much like analysts who tend to work in a certain industry, right? They, they cover the oil and gas sector and they know oil and gas, right? They don't go from oil and gas to oranges. Prosecutors work the same way, right? Prosecutors work the same way. They are going to look at patterns across a particular sector. They're going to look at companies in a particular sector. And so, you know, I would not assume that this is a situation where the Swiss uh, officials are like, okay, good. We got this one commodities, you know, organization. We're all finished. We're going to, you know, put that all in a box, put the box on the shelf and go look at, you know, fill in watches. I don't know, fill in the blank industry. They're going to look for patterns across industries. And so, um, you know, it, it's, it's, this is a case worth watching, um, particularly if you think you have similar things that are happening inside the organization you're with now. One of the things that really captured my attention as I was researching this is that this involves bribes made to officials in Angola. And Angola mm -hmm. is a country that suffers from, you know, the so-called resource curse. It's one of the world's largest uh, exporters of petroleum. It has a huge diamond mine, and yet most of its people live on $2 or less a day. And a lot of that's mm -hmm. because the corruption involved in the extraction of the natural resources is just out of control. And so, you know, one of the cool things about the Ethicast is that with every episode, we're getting more people checking us out, and they're not always necessarily, um, you know, full-time ethics and compliance professionals or people who are interested in ethics and want to learn more about it. And you know, a question that often arises with cases like this is it's bribery, though. Like, who is really getting hurt with bribery? <laughs> and I look at an entire country that's kind of out of whack because bribery has done so much to derail things. I would love to get your retort to the notion of it's just bribery. It's just a couple greased palms. Where is the harm really? Yeah. Yeah. Bill, this is a that that's a, a counterpoint line that we have heard so many times. Um, over the course of the last two decades, and particularly if you talk to some of my colleagues here, like our colleague Leslie Benton, who's been in the corruption focus space for you know her entire professional career, pretty much, really working on rooting out corruption, and that is always one of the counterpoints. Oh, it doesn't matter. Like it's just dollars changing hands. Well, dollars changing hands leads to somebody winning the contract that otherwise wouldn't have won it, right? Dollars changing hands leads to the use of substandard concrete. Dollars changing hands leads to the use of a um, extraction team that is going to completely disrespect the environment in which they're working and the people with whom they're working. Uh, you know, dollars changing hands leads to human trafficking in the supply chain. This is to say that this is just, you know, a victimless crime is completely without basis, right? Um, Corruption let, you know, it's, my favorite line is the one that Google used to use years and years ago when Andy Hinton was still their chief compliance officer. He said, people bribe and people die because his example was one of the dams in China where there was corruption involved in the, in the construction of the dam, substandard concrete was used, the dam burst and it flooded a village, right? 
That's how bribery harms people directly. That is, that is the kind of behavior. Because basically the only reason you're bribing is because you don't think you would otherwise win that deal. Mm-hmm. And the thing you have to ask yourself is why not? Right? Why can't I win fairly? And if I can't win fairly, why am I in this business in the first place? Well, Erica, as always, it's terrific to have you on the show. Thank you so much for joining me today. And thank you so much for sharing your insights with us. Bill, it is my pleasure. Absolutely. This was a good one. It's a great story. So for anybody out there who hasn't dug down this rabbit hole as deeply as as Bill and I have, um, I invite you to join us. For a host of free anti-corruption and anti-bribery resources, please visit the Ethisphere Resource Center at ethisphere.com slash resources. I'm Bill Coffin, and this has been The Ethicast. For more episodes, please visit the Ethisphere YouTube channel at youtube.com slash ethisphere. And if this is your first time enjoying the show, please be sure to like and subscribe either on YouTube or on our podcasting platforms at Apple, Spotify, Google, and Amazon Music. Thanks so much for joining us. And until next time, remember, strong ethics is good business.